and welcome to We Are History Doc. Okay. We are History Doc. Oh, John, I'm going to start again. I'm having oh, a this is great stuff. I'm having Hello, a nightmare. Hello, welcome to www.wearehistory. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to explain something to the listeners here. Two things happen. Well, one, the main one is I am going through the menopause and have lost my mind. <laughs> and because of that, when we <laughs> recorded an we recorded the Scottish Witches podcast earlier today, so the one you heard last week. And John and I do the countdown at the beginning where we count from five to one. It's quite and hard. I, and then we do a clap at the end, right, which is so the producer knows where the recording so, starts. Yeah. And I, for some unknown reason, clapped all the way through the <laughs> countdown because I just forgot how to do it. It's like and watching a seal, so, listeners. It's like watching a seal so on busy Zoom. <laughs> concentrating on getting the countdown right. I forgot what the show was called in this recording. Wearecom so, History Net. <laughs> so, okay, let me try again. Hello, welcome to We Are History Pod. I'm Angela Barn. And I'm John O'Farrell, sitting here yes, bemused. <laughs> Angela Barnes, tell us what we are talking about today. Today, John, we are talking about the great exhibition of the works of industry of all nations because the Victorians, as you know, love a catchy title. Fantastic. When was this, Angela? This was in 1851 and actually was suggested to us by at least one listener. I've got Twitter blocked on my laptop so it doesn't distract me from writing. So John had to look it up. I think a couple of people suggested it, but we only found one of them. So it's Graham, who is at Catweg on Twitter. Or maybe he's German, at Catweg. Many other good suggestions for uh, subjects. We're very grateful to you for your interest and uh, your continued listenership. And as quite often happens when we do a topic on here, and I initially go... Oh, I think I know all about that already. Yes. Um, I then read a book and went, oh, I knew nothing really about the Great Exhibition. I knew there was a big glass house in Hyde Park and that was pretty much. <laughs> right. So I read a book called The World for a Shilling by Michael Leapman. Um, it's The World for a Shilling, How the Great Exhibition of 1851 Shaped a Nation. I wrote The Great Exhibition of 1851, New Interdisciplinary Essays, edited by John, Louise Purbrook. you know that you just said that you wrote that. <laughs> I read. I start again. All these books that you say you've written, have you actually just read them? I just read them. Maybe you're right. Maybe I just <laughs> yeah. read the best a man can get. So I thought it was weird when you told me that you'd written Jane Eyre. Look, uh, it's, there okay. were a lot of people in the room. So, <laughs> so yeah, the year was 1851. 1851. Britain's Industrial Revolution is in full swing. Yeah. Uh, the census that is held in 1851 is the first one in which the majority of the population live in towns or cities rather than the countryside. Wow. So we're reflecting a real fundamental shift from agriculture to industry. Oh, it's the Corn Laws again. We're going to be going. <laughs> we're going to be. We always end up back at the Corn Laws, and we know I, how boring I that is. I love how much you you find the Corn Laws boring, but you know it. We are talking about five years after the repeal of the Corn Laws. So three international trade in foodstuffs is booming. Transportation and shipping is being industrialised. It's faster and more efficient than ever. And Britain is right at the centre of all these big changes. And, of course, Britain is never one to shy away from showing off about success. So how did the Great Exhibition come about? Well, John, we're going to go back a bit. But (laughs) uncharacteristically for me, we're only going back a few years. Oh, what peasants revolt? The the, the crucifixion <laughs> of Jesus Christ. Where are we go? What's where is? What's your starting point? This one, Angela. <laughs> Actually, John, we're only going back as far as eighteen thirty-seven. Ah. Eighteen thirty-seven, because a young eighteen-year-old Queen Victoria has come to the throne. Yep. 
And in 1940, sorry, years and later, so 1940, she married sorry, a German. 18... I'm looking at your notes here. I'd say <laughs> if the Queen married a German in 1940, that might have just changed World War II a little bit. Obviously, 1840, that was a typo, John. In 1840, she married the German Prince Albert of Saxe Coburg and Gotha. Rock and roll. Uh, now, he wasn't hugely well received at the time, John. He wasn't popular with the British public, being German. And this for is a start. before two world wars and one world cup, isn't it? Yeah, before, before all that, that, the government weren't over keen on a German prince. So they refused to grant him any sort of peerage. And in fact, it wasn't until uh, 1857, so nearly 20 years after they got married, wow. that he was given the title of Prince Consort that we know him as today. Until then, he was just plain old HRH. Okay. And because they wouldn't give him any peerages you know it wasn't duke of anywhere or whatever his response to that was it would almost be a step downwards for as a duke of saxony i feel myself much higher than a duke of york or kent Ooh, right albert yeah um so they also gave him a smaller allowance than previous consorts had had so instead of fifty thousand pounds a year he was only given thirty thousand pounds a year and Money. i think there's a sense but he felt a bit emasculated in all this. Yeah. You know, this is a time when a man is supposed to be the master of his own house. Yes. And he said, you know, I'm very happy and contented, but the difficulty in filling my place with the proper dignity is that I'm only the husband and not the master in the house. Actually, Angela, your husband WhatsApp me something similar along those lines quite recently. <laughs> it's a fair <laughs> so, point. So he was a nobleman though, wasn't he? So he needed yeah, a, he's he needed a nobleman. He needed a, a legacy, yeah. So he set about making himself busy. Um, he had a keen interest in education, arts, sciences. He became uh, president of the Society for the Extinction of Slavery in 1839, yeah. which is uh, very much to be uh, applauded. President yeah. of the Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce in 1843. Can we see the way his sort of interests lie? Yeah, absolutely. And he did all this, you know, f for his legacy. So he probably... Not be too happy if he did know that when you mention the name Prince Albert today, mostly people think of Christmas cards and knob piercings. But at the time, he's trying to build a different sort <laughs> yeah. of legacy. No, I, don't, I want to be remembered not for the knob piercing, OK? There's got to be more yeah. to me, more to Prince the Albert The knob piercing is quite interesting, because there's obviously a lot of, uh, you know, discussion about whether or not he had a Prince Albert. But <laughs> there's, there's, um, there's different theories. One of them is that... Um, his member was so large, he had to have a ring around it so he could hook it back a bit so it wouldn't show in his breeches. This is the sort of history people want. Yeah. <laughs> how long was um, his knob? This is How uh... big was his knob and why did he have a ring for it? But whether he did or not, we don't really know. Did nobody ask so... Victoria? Hey, Victoria, just tell us. <laughs> oh, they were a bit prudish back then, weren't they? <laughs> a little, a little. They had, weirdly at the time, quite Victorian attitudes. They did, that's weird. That's a um, yeah. yeah, clues in the name. <laughs> So anyway, he was president of the Society of Arts. Right. And when he was, they started to put on these little annual shows in London with small cash prizes. Oh. And one of the members of the Society of Arts was a man called Henry Cole. And he won one of these prizes. He designed this teapot. He did it under a, he used to have a pseudonym, Felix Summerlee. He won a prize for a teapot. This is rock for and roll. Teapot. <laughs> I know, isn't it? Right. But he felt that these little exhibitions that they were holding at the Society of Arts could go Further Now, Henry Cole, he was a bit of a polymath. Um, he was a civil servant, inventor. He wrote children's books. And wow. he's also credited with coming up with the idea of sending Christmas cards. Wow, he'd be an inf influencer today, an Instagram influencer. He go, would. Look at my I teapots. He'd go, <laughs> <laughs> like, millions of followers for his teapots. So, what, so maybe they were sort of thinking, maybe we could have, like, 
a whole exhibition of teapots and people come, come yeah, around maybe. the world to see my teapots. <laughs> well, he regularly lobbied the government for support to improve sort of standards in industrial design. So it was the design of the teapot that was uh, important rather than just the fact it was a teapot. And Let me show you, that, support... Angela, whilst you're doing oh, that, look, hang on, look at this teapot. teapot here. This is like the cup and the pot sits in it. Isn't that brilliant? Oh, oh that's beautiful. That, that would have well got a prize, John. Yeah, it's a, so I get two cups in the morning instead of one. Isn't that, doesn't that deserve a prize? <laughs> I Where's wish the prize? listeners could see how happy your face is with I your teapot, my, John. I love my it's tea. I'm tweet sweet. it. <laughs> Do tweet a picture of your teapot well, when yeah. this goes out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I've covered the But, but don't lost tweet a picture of your Prince Albert. That's, <laughs> don't do that. I always get those two mixed up. <laughs> so Henry Carr was regularly lobbying the government for support to improve standards in industrial design. And with support from the society and from Prince Albert, he organised a successful exhibition of arts manufacturers in okay. 1847. Right. Now, all these shows then became annual, these little art shows and design right. shows. And in 19... Oh, 1948. Oh, 19 in That's my... when my parents started going out. <laughs> <laughs> in 1848, Henry Cole approaches Prince Albert with the idea of holding a larger national exhibition. Now... The idea of having a national exhibition isn't a new one. It's a French one. Oh, okay. um, Europe's first major exhibition of manufacturing was held in the Temple of Industry in Paris in 1798. And wow. they'd have them every every few years from the 1790s. It's particularly useful to the French. We'd, we'd help destroy a lot of their trade in the Napoleonic Wars, hadn't we? And, yeah, um, absolutely. So wasn't there an element of, oh, well, French are doing it. We can do it. We'll do that. We'll do it better than the French. Was that the idea? Yeah. Think? I mean, there, you know, there's a very British sentiment, isn't there? Of anything the French can do, we can do better, except when it comes to wine or civil unrest. Um, <laughs> yes. At the beginning of 1848, Cole says to Prince Albert, uh, who was cautious at first, because even though now he's sort of, he's been married to Victoria for eight years, he's more accepted. People like him. The public like him much more than they did when he arrived. But the courtiers were still... He annoyed them a bit. Okay. You know, they felt he could be a bit hasty or stick his nose in where it wasn't wanted or whatever. So he felt that a large scale event, like a big national exhibition, wouldn't only cost a lot of money and resources, but his personal reputation that he'd worked so hard to improve, yeah, would really be at stake. So he said to Cole that he really liked the idea, but he had to be sure that the government were going to be supportive before he could back it. Right. So did they go and see the Paris? That's right. Yeah. Then they, in... then they all get on the cross-channel ferry with a load of lagers, come back with a load of brie. That's right. They okay. went on a jolly. <laughs> a jolly, a booze Or as cruise. they called it, you know, a, a fact-finding mission. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that what politicians call a jolly? <laughs> That's yeah. right. I went to um, Paris. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and, and copy the... Because they had one in France in 1849, didn't they? So it's like, well, that'll be our... They did. I like how you're avoiding saying the name of the, <laughs> the Quin- uh, exhibition. I've Quin- got Quenial. in my notes here. They went to see the Quinquennial Paris exhibition. <laughs> That's right. That's why you gave that bit to me. I did. I thought, I'm not saying quinquennial. There's a bit in my history book, Angela, where I wrote in the history book that the uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy mutated into variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. But that was easy for them to say. (laughs) So I had to to read this in the audio book. Oh, it's in the audio book. In the audio book, it took me about 10 takes to go variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, you know. Weirdly, you just did it perfectly first time there. Sort of, sort of. (laughs) It occurred to me I was going to have to actually say it out loud. That was a killer. I was like, yes. Oh, after a morning. That's it now, isn't it? When you're writing a book. I, um, yeah, you have to God love him. I, I, you have to th- realise you're going to have to read it out. I read um, 
lovely Miles Jupp, who oh, yeah. uh, you know used to host News Quiz. And obviously, yeah. I know Miles fairly well through News Quiz and stuff, and a very lovely, sweet man. And uh, he wrote a novel, and I listened to the audio book of it because I listened to it in the car. Yeah. And um, and there's quite an explicit sex scene in it, oh, and no, I couldn't cope. Th- I couldn't cope <laughs> with Miles Jupp Miles. reading it. <laughs> and I just thought, when you were writing this, you obviously didn't think, oh, one day I'm going to have to read this in yeah. a booth. No, <laughs> in a booth. I never put sex scenes in my books. There, I just. <laughs> They're always, no. they're always sex that goes wrong. That's the only way I can write about sex. Sex that's funny. Well, you've got to write what you know. I mean, <laughs> <you're>... <laughs> oh, burn. <laughs> so, no, let's quickly get back to these French exhibitions. What was happening yes. with these French so, exhibitions, Angela? Yes. So they were, the French were national exhibitions. The French had sort of poo-pooed the idea of international exhibits oh, because no, the France whole point was to showcase was what France, France had to offer. France, France is but the only Britain, country in the world. they didn't have such qualms because Britain is so utterly convinced of their superiority to everyone else on the planet that to make their exhibition stand out, they think, well, why don't we have an international remit? You know, invite contributors from all over. Yeah. Because since the repeal of the Corn Laws... Oh, yeah. I thought you were going to have a look, yeah. Uh, You know, a measure of free trade had been introduced, and this is a chance to enhance the spirit of that. Open the exhibition up to all nations, get all eyes on London, while simultaneously showing off Britain's self-confidence that they're the best. They're so not feeling threatened. You can you bring know. you can bring your foreign tat and put your bloody uh, crappy French things next to our fantastic British stuff, which is top of the world. That's what we're basically saying. So, That's basically what yeah, they're saying. Yeah. 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 So they report this idea back to Prince Albert and he agrees it's a good idea and that the exhibition, if it goes ahead, should have an international remit. Okay. Now... It's all very well, these, you know, princes and well-to-do gentlemen in that fancy London being on board. But if Britain's going to hold an international exhibition of British industry and manufacturing, they thought it's probably a good idea to run it by some industrialists, you know, because London wasn't an industrial city. It was still very much crafts in London. You know, it's Manchester and Bradford and other places that were industrial cities. So, you know, what do these Ponciati Londoners know about large-scale production of goods or trade? Okay. So... In August 1849, four representatives from the Society of Arts, they go round visiting manufacturing towns of Lancashire and Yorkshire, right. and they meet with these sort of leading industrialists and gauge their reactions to the idea. And these industrialists that they met with, they're largely in favour. Okay. You know, their main concern was that the prizes shouldn't just be for good design. Right. Uh, you know, for, for things looking nice. Right. They need to be include cost-effectiveness, streamlining of production for the cheapness that is what made Britain stand out, you know, being able to mass produce cheaply. Okay, so it's more to illustrate sort of utilitarian purpose of the exhibition, to show that human effort ought to be organised for the improvement of mankind and showcase goods that benefit everyone rather than just luxury goods crafted for the wealthy. Is that the sort of sense of it? Yeah, yeah. That, and of course the fact that if the awards were just for design, then the French would win them all, and we wouldn't get any. Ah, now, 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 now that Prince Albert's agreeing, yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> there's that as well. Uh, it's, so it's you know it should be about manufacturing and how it could be put Britain at the forefront of technology and design, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah, and and Prince Albert agreed that that should be the sort yeah. of thrusting point of the exhibition. There were thirty different classes of awards that were given, and. Um, They were interested in commerce over art. So out of the 30 classes, you had things like paper printing and bookbinding, 
philosophical instruments, musical, what's horological philo- and surgical just, instruments. Sorry, sorry, just to stop you there, what's a philosophical instrument? That's a really good point, John. I read that out without thinking, what is a philosophical? <laughs> if a philosophical instrument falls down in the woods, does it make a sound, John? <laughs> Maybe. That's the question. They had classes for carriages, railway and naval mechanisms. Cool. Substances used as food was one class. That's a which weird. Sounds a bit chlorinated chickening, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does, a pot noodle. Subs- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But out of the 30 classes, only yep. one of them was dedicated to art. There was a class that was called Fine Arts, Sculpture, Models and the Plastic Arts. Plastic Arts. Was plastic a thing back then? Presumably, well, as, there must have been some form of plastic, I suppose. Some sort of pre-Bakelite right. form I of... I, I was, don't in know. In my head, I put plastic in the 20th century, but... Or knows? maybe it meant plastic in the you know, adjective Maybe like plastic Yeah, arts. you know, or something that... Yeah. What, like little morph figures. Yeah, maybe that's what that's they were it. talking about. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's morph. <laughs> maybe it was morph. <laughs> um, uh, was anyone so, against this? Was it like a, was it everyone thinking, oh, this is a great idea, or did we have some? Yeah, there sort were. Of it had its, it had its naysayers, John. It was fair to say. Um, one of the most outspoken ones was a rather bigoted uh, MP who was Colonel Sibthorpe, oh, and he Colonel wasn't Sibthorpe. a fan of uh, Prince Albert and his progressive outlook, and he also wasn't a fan of Prince Albert's foreignness. Okay. Um, so he was a UKIP, yeah. was he? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's the one in the government who made sure that Albert didn't get his full annual oh, nice. allowance because he was all foreign. Okay. Um, and uh, he, he, Colonel Sibthorpe referred to the exhibition as an industrial exhibition in the heart of fashionable Belgravia to enable foreigners to rob us of our honour. Wow. So I think we, we see where he's coming from. Blimey. But nevertheless... Plans are forging ahead. So, right, but first question, that's if I'm, the, if I'm there, I'm going, right, where's the money coming from? That's the first yeah. thing that everyone's got to be asking. So had they worked yeah. that out? They did. So they decided not to ask the government to fund the exhibition. They wanted the government on side and they thought if they asked them for money for it, then they could say no. So uh, the Society of Arts, headed by Prince Albert, they decided that it would be funded by private subscription. After all... It is these industrialists that are set okay. to benefit from it. First of all, they went to the city okay. uh, where Henry Cole, he persuaded London merchants and bankers to part with their cash. And then there was a Royal Commission formed, wasn't there, in, um, in 1850? That's Albert's right. Albert's president. Yeah. You've got uh, yeah. Lord John Russell was the prime minister. Robert Peel, yeah. still going. Yeah. William Gladstone, who's uh, probably quite young then. And uh, yeah. architect Charles Barry, among others. Yeah. So the great and the good. Great selection, yeah. a section of society there, and I can't see anything missing. From yeah, nothing. It's definitely representative <laughs> of everybody. Everyone, really. Yeah, it's representative of all incredibly rich and wealthy white men. <laughs> um, so, Victoria grants this sort of royal assent, I suppose, to this commission being formed, and then the commission. The first thing they do is they invite a load of provincial mayors from across the country right. and foreign ambassadors from France, Germany, all over the place right. to come to a big old swanky dinner at Mansion House, oh, the Lord yum, Mayor's yum. gaff. Right? I've been to some of those. So they have this huge banquet with loads of pomp and ceremony and musicians and everyone's in their ceremonial dress and the Prime Minister's there and Prince Albert gives this heartfelt speech about the project and he urges them all to go back to where they're from you know back to their home yeah wherever they're mayor of or whatever and to start making collections to pay for this wonderful opportunity wow and so they did these mayors went back to their towns said i've had a lovely dinner with the prince <laughs> it was so cool so i bought myself john yeah a subscription to the british newspaper archive oh, as fantastic. a little 
Christmas yeah, presents you, that's myself. You disappearing on the internet. That's for yeah. Several days uh, at a time. So I've blocked Twitter from myself, but now I'm just. <laughs> that's a much that better instead. use of your time, I think. I think so, and. Um, there was a lovely, uh, I think, I can't remember where he was the mayor of. It was Hull or somewhere like that. There was a piece in the local paper about how excited he was because he's been invited to go for this dinner. Uh-huh. So, so it was a big deal yeah, for these yeah. local mayors. You know. So, of course, they're on board. Now the committee, they've got the local mayors on board. They need to get the sort of captains of industry on board. So they then go around the country again, going back to these industrialists that they'd spoken to before, yeah. consulted to before, and said, right, you know that thing that you said was a good idea? Right. Now we want you to pay for it. Yeah. The Queen gave her £1,000, didn't she? She and did. Then, and then Albert goes, well, I don't want to upstage her. It would be it would be bad manners, actually, to give more than her. So I'll give 500 because uh, just to show that I am not superior to the Queen. That's, that's a exactly. status thing. It's very important that I'm very not important. as generous as the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how... It was funded so that local industrialists, you know, local businessmen as well would donate. They also took collections from employees yeah. and people donated because they wanted to be identified with the project. And because they might um, get sacked if they didn't, that sort of probably thing. Probably a yeah. little bit of that yeah. in there. But also remember, John, you know, Victorians, they loved the idea of curiosities yeah. and, and of seeing things that were outside their realm of, yeah. of what they knew. There's probably a lot of people might not have understood exactly what the exhibition was going to be. And they might have thought that they were donating money to, you know, a big freak show or the right. things that they were used to, you know, the showcase of one-offs, a few, so you know, the old bearded lady or strange exotic animal, or they might have, yeah. their expectations might have been quite different. So that said, you know, in this age, where there was so much change and the, the pace of change was incredible and trains were appearing and um, crowds flocked to London to see these new things anyway. So if when oh, tra- yeah, they trains were. were getting up steam... You know, a crowd would gather to watch it. In London, you could buy mm. tickets to watch chicken hatch eggs in a fancy new incubator. So, um, yeah. so, so, so there was a great uh, appetite for all this stuff from the ordinary people. Yeah. And one of the yeah. things, things that Prince Albert was determined was that the, you know, the exhibition should be accessible to the working classes as well. Swoon. Yeah. And this is a big development, really. This yeah. is so. Do you remember back when uh, he married the Queen, and he was in this not, sort of not spree personally, of... Angela. <laughs> <laughs> he was in this spree of making himself busy, yeah. you know, patronising lots of commissions and things. Yeah. He also became president of the Society for Improving the Condition of the Labouring Classes. Okay. Which, for you know, someone in the monarchy at that time, that's a quite a progressive. Yeah. Move. Um. Now it might come to cause some problems later, which we'll yeah. we'll come on to. But for now. They sort of they're forging ahead. So where's it going to be? They got to decide where it's going to be. So yeah. we all know uh, that Hyde Park was the first place identified as the site for the location. But Ooh. if you're going to invite hordes of the great unwashed to London, do you really want them traipsing through Knightsbridge and annoying sort of high society and being smelly and probably nicking their wallets as well? If I've done my research and watched Oliver Twist, um, <laughs> that I mean you'd think, well, that'd be marvellous. But it was it was estimated at this time that a hundred thousand people would turn up. Yeah. The locals in posh Belgravia weren't thrilled that these, you know, the great hordes of people from across the country were going to be traipsing through their back garden, which was, you know, what Hyde Park was. And then, oh, you remember one of the people, of course, against it was old Colonel Sibthorpe, uh, that MP. He pipes up again because he realises now that this idea he's so against because it's encouraging all these foreigners. He realises the country's actually embracing the idea of these people visiting from all over the world, you know. So he realises that he's got to frame his argument against it in a different way. And when okay. he sees that there's a little bit of 
unrest about it being in Hyde Park. He jumps on that and he says, yes, you can't have it in Hyde Park because there's beautiful old elm trees. That's what he focuses on. And, and you can't die. uproot these elm trees, <laughs> yeah. you know, in Hyde Park. That would be terrible. But in his statement, it's fair to say his real feelings come through because he tells Parliament that the elms were to be cut down for one of the greatest humbugs, one of the greatest frauds, one of the greatest absurdities ever known, all for the purpose of encouraging foreigners. <sighs> oh, you let out your real feelings, Simple. Yeah, he did. He gave it away. <laughs> I mean, uh, other sites had been discussed, hadn't they? There was Leicester yeah. Square, which seems a bit small, Regent's Park, Primrose Hill, Victoria Park, Battersea, all south of the river. And uh, an alternative bit of Hyde Park, but it was the south side of the park was felt to be best suited in its race. It was. It was. That's what the Society of Arts really wanted, was a south part of Hyde Park. And uh, eventually there was a debate about it in Parliament. It didn't look at first as if they were going to get their way with that. But around that time, Sir Robert Peel, who was part of the Royal Commission and part of the Society of Arts, he dies. And he's very well liked, Robert Peel. And he'd been a big advocate of that site that they wanted in the south of Hyde Park. So it's felt that Parliament did vote in favour of it in the end because that's what he would have wanted. It's funny how that happens, isn't it? Tribute to him. I've got this theory that the moon landings wouldn't have happened if JFK hadn't been shot. Because JFK's got that famous footage of him going, we aim to go to the moon because it's difficult. If he'd stayed alive, everyone's going, God, this is expensive. This is, can we, can we not show yeah. this, you know? And so Robert yeah, Peel died. it's not really our priority right yeah. now with, yeah. you know, with Vietnam wars and, and whatever else. Yeah. Um, but uh, with uh, Peel dying, it's like, oh, we've got to do it now because it's what Peel <laughs> yep. wanted. Do you know my dad? My dad still called coppers peelers. From, really? Yeah, I think it was an Irish thing. Was your dad around in the 80s? <laughs> no, but I think he was around in the <laughs> 1920s and 30s and he still, yeah. he still called coppers peelers back then. That's hilarious. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, do continue, Angela. So the site was decided south of Hyde Park and some concessions were made to placate the annoyed wealthy inhabitants. Um, One of them was that wherever it ended up, the building would be temporary. So it wouldn't be there forever. It'd just be there for that summer of 1851 and would be removed after the exhibition. And it was also agreed that the cheap tickets that they were proposing for the oiks, you know, to make it accessible to the working classes, they'd only be available... After the summer season. So the summer season for high society was in May and June. And okay. that's when these society heiresses would be holding their balls in their London Tell me about homes. It. You know, Tell and, me about it. It's my life, that is. Exactly. You don't want the working classes traipsing through your manor in Clapham, do you? While you're trying to hold a society no, no. ball. So the season ran from May to June. And then, of course, high society all buggered off to their state homes in the country in July. So they didn't care what happened yeah. after that. <laughs> Can so I just interrupt they, you again? Just sorry. Yeah. But uh, there's a producer that you and I know, and he invited oh, yeah. me over to a party and my co-writer, and there are loads of writers there. I think and, I know who yeah, you're talking yeah. about, don't I, and instantly? Then, yes. it became clear that he had another party the night before for all the massive celebs. So all the <laughs> huge TV stars, comedians, uh, people who are on the telly all the time. And we, we basically got the food that was left over. I was going to say, were you there to do the leftovers? Yeah, it was right. Like, That's why, amazing. Why my husband's bringing me a couple of of wine here. <laughs> That's so funny. That's and basically what they Because were doing. I know exactly who you're talking about, I'm not remotely surprised. So anyway, that's what they were doing with a great exhibition. Yeah, yeah basically, yeah. The poor people could come After when, the, yeah. when the rich people were out of town. So I suppose the commission then had to decide who would design and build it. Yeah. They invited tenders for suitable designs from architects and received 245 designs. 100 of them, they said, warranted honourable mention. But they just couldn't agree on one that fitted the bill. No, they didn't. They didn't really like any of the designs submitted. So instead, they had help with old uh, 
Isambard Kingdom Brunel oh, himself, yeah, yeah. who was also, I think, on the uh, Society of Arts. And they came up with their own design yeah. and they published it in the London newspapers. Did people like and it? And people hated it. John. I know. They hated it. For a start, this design, it was a red brick design and it used an estimated 19 million bricks, wow. which sounds, John, a little bit more permanent than this promised temporary building wow, that yeah. they're talking about. Yeah. And also... This is the year. Where are they going to get that amount of material and get it built in less than it's a like year? You know, you've got Power to make Station nineteen million yeah. bricks. Yeah, That's yeah. a lot. I'm hearing a lot of. I'm, not, I'm hearing a lot of can't do, Angela. I'm hearing. Well, a, yeah. it was also it was way above the hundred thousand pounds ceiling cost that the commission had. That never happens. Know? That never happens. That things go up above their estimate when they're sort no. of initially proposed. I mean. You know, luckily yeah. these days, never happen to contracts. Put out to tender and just give them to the mates, those in charge, is it? Just Yeah, that could it, never that happen. That could never you. happen. <laughs> so, so who else do we bring in? So eventually, John, there was a man called Joseph Paxton. Oh, I've heard of him. And he produced a design. Now, he was a he was a horticulturalist, first yep. and foremost. And he worked for the Duke of Devonshire in his Chatsworth property. And he'd built these two innovative conservatories okay. to house the Duke's exotic ah. plant collection, right? Yep. Now, after the repeal of the window tax in 1845, yep. the market for glass has really expanded yeah. you know, and, and methods of production were faster and cheaper than ever. And they, and they, they had been used. Glass was starting to be used for other non-horticultural buildings, wasn't it? Like uh, railway terminals, terminuses, termini. Terminuses, termini, yeah. So obviously glass had been used in glass houses and, and for yeah. horticulture, but they had started to be used in other forms of building. Apparently out of those 245 people that submitted that they sort of dismissed, yep. there were people who had submitted glass houses, okay. but Joseph Paxton was just very good at selling his ideas to them, at promoting himself okay. and saying, this is wow, what you do. And yeah. his design, to be fair, would even shut up old Colonel Sibthorpe because his design included the elm trees so it went over these elm trees you didn't have to dig them up right good it was 1848 feet long by 454 feet wide 563 meters by 138 meters it was, it was big john it was big, it was big. a big glass house in the middle um, of and of course Park. it it would become to be known the crystal palace we'll move on to that later that was a name given to it by uh, the editor of punch douglas yeah Gerald. it was a satirical name it was yeah. a sort of it was a joke, you know, the Crystal Palace. Yeah. So Crystal Palace Football Club, where it was eventually moved, are, ni are named after a sort of a satirical pun, which is weird. Yeah. <laughs> and part of London is based on that now, you know. But anyway, yeah. some didn't like it, did they? John Ruskin, no. the author and artist, likened it to a cucumber frame. Yeah, people were a bit, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. what, you're going to do this in a greenhouse? Because they hadn't seen glass used in this yeah. way before very much. So it was a glass house with iron structure rather than wood, which was something quite different. And the first batch of iron columns, they were delivered to Hyde Park on the 7th of September, 1850. And they said they'd have it ready for New Year's Day, 1851. That's so it was like impressive. three, four months, less yeah. than four months, they were going to get it so, so done in. Yeah, so there was 300 men began working on the site. That number would increase to over 2,000. So that's insane. Labourers yeah. would hang around the site hoping to pick up bits of work. I can Glazing, I can do glazing. I could do a bit of that, no problem. Yeah, <laughs> oh, enough. sorry, dropped it. Whoops. <laughs> So many people as well had invested in this project nationally yeah. that they wanted to keep an eye on their investment. You know, they wanted to see how it was coming along. And so they had this situation where while they're trying to build it, these dignitaries kept turning up to having a look, you know, kept yeah. going, oh, I've donated to this. I want to see how it's getting on. Yeah. To the point where they were just getting in the way of these sort of industrialists and rich men and gawpers. So the contractors had to charge a five shilling admission wow, for anyone who wanted to come and look at the construction. 
Um, and any of that money that they raised went into a compensation fund for injured workers because okay. obviously you didn't have the insurance sort or... of workers' rights protection no, no. and insurance you have today. And people did get injured during the building of it. But still, even after that charge, like eight to ten people a day would come and have a look at it being built. Wow. wow. And yeah. there, were, there were industrial disputes, weren't there, during the construction? There were. There was, yeah. a, there was a glazier strike, which I would say was in a building of a massive Crystal Palace, I'd say a glazier's strike was probably quite a big deal. A problematic. But in the end, yeah. they were just dismissed and replaced by other glaziers. Just get the French in. Yeah, well, many of them were French, which sort of pissed them off. There was one, I can't remember his name, there's one sort of main agitator who um, kind of realised that, because I think they were paid by however many pains they did at a time or something. And, oh, and then the number, would, the target number would increase, but the pay wouldn't. And, oh, okay. you know, they, I think it's fair to say they weren't the greatest employers I'm of sure the workforce, yeah. but, you know, people needed work and that's what happened. Wow. Okay. I think we'll take a little... Oh, before uh, it opens, Angela. We're having a break before it opens. I, I know. See, I wanna, I know well, you know me, John. I like to delay gratification of <laughs> the exciting I, I stuff. Don't, I don't know that about you, Angela. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take a little break, John. Yeah. I'm going to read this fascinating book about the repeal of the Corn Laws. Oh, fantastic. Um, and we'll see you in a minute. <laughs> see you in a minute. Welcome back. We're talking about the Great Exhibition of 1851, a uh, great big Victorian showing off of how Great Britain was. They didn't do all aspects of Victorian life, did they? It wasn't like parades of Victorian prostitutes from the East End or chimney sweeps, you know, their knees If there were, John, it wasn't documented. I mean, okay. none of us were actually there. So yes, people <laughs> they didn't were... make it to the guidebook. All the, you know, the... Um conditions in the factories that was all somehow left out so what 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 i think it's fair to say though john that with visitors coming from across the country the prostitutes and criminals of london probably did quite a roaring trade that everyone summer. benefited it was lovely. and if everyone benefited so there were of course other concerns about this huge attraction being in london and one of the main ones was um with a focus being on the working man yes um in 1848, so just a couple of years earlier, there'd been a huge wave of revolution through Europe. Yes. Uh, tens of thousands dead, um, you know, states disrupted, yes. uh, lots of change, lots of violence, lots of, of things happening across... Governments changing, governments Many, falling. many countries. When, when France sneezes, Europe catches cold, is what they say. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, Britain at this time is feeling pretty smug about it all. Yes, they'd had the Chartists... But there was no violent revolution in the league of what was happening across Europe. Yeah. But they were always fearful of it. The yeah. the sort of ruling classes, particularly the monarchy, yeah. was, so was was scared of it coming across the channel. So with the Great Exhibition's emphasis on the working man and the fear of the working class revolution in Britain was, was huge among the higher classes, they were maybe thinking, could this yeah. somehow precipitate agitation? Exactly. Or, yeah. Yeah. And, and there was, you know, there was some paranoia about what could happen with everyone flocking to London from all over the world. Britain's ambassador in Paris, he warned of socialist agents who were planning to pervert the spirit of the population, in his words. Right. Um, they thought agitators from across Europe would head to London uh, to try and instigate a revolution. They, they always try and say outside agitators. They always try and say yeah. whenever anything As is if a protest. The people of Britain don't yeah, have that in yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. But even in every industrial dispute, uh, police say there were outside agitators stirring up the strikers. It's like, no, there were genuine grievances. Uh, genuine being... concern and genuine yeah, yeah. wrongdoing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, we did have, to be fair, that said, we did have Karl yeah. Marx sitting in the British Library writing the Communist Manifesto. But apart yeah, from I mean, that, London... there were no outside agitators. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> London was a sort of haven for these exiled revolutionaries yeah. at this period. You know, a lot of them did head to London, like you say, including Karl Marx. Goebbels, um, Goebbels no, sorry. Um... 
at Engels. Kerbal's Engels, very yeah, Kerbal's and Engels, very Engels. different. Coming at very different angles, John. Okay. <laughs> um, but, and, of course, the Metropolitan Police Force at this point is fairly new. It's yeah. like 20, 30 years old, if that. Yeah. So it was thought that it was largely because of this Metropolitan Police Force that the Chartists had been stopped. So it was decided they would de- be deployed during the Great Exhibition to protect Britain from these radical influences. Um, and of course, there was also a fear of increased petty crime if London's going to be full of people, especially people who are a bit naive, yeah. never been to a big city before, got yeah. cash in their pockets, yeah. you know. That's, that's like my, my dad on the Paris Metro. It's like right, yeah. <laughs> every time he'd put, his, he'd put his wallet in his side of his jacket and it's like just every time he'd get pickpocketed and they'd go, oh, you need to go to Lost Property fourth floor. I mean, basically pickpockets <laughs> of Paris were going to their bank manager and say, I want, you know, can I take out mortgage? No, you can't. Afford. No, Mr. O'Farrell is coming to Paris. Oh, no, you can, <laughs> oh, definitely. You're going to be rich. Everyone, it's party time. <laughs> so, oh, uh, so the police commissioner, he asked for a thousand extra men, didn't he? And, yeah, and fifty grand to pay for them, which I was hard to measure yeah. today. But um, absolutely, that's a lot of money. Yeah, and and at the time, so the ranger of the royal parks was the Duke of Wellington. Okay, sounds like a bit of a come down for him, if you don't mind me saying. So. A, a little bit, yes. Yeah. So I think this was his sort of. <laughs> yeah. it was his little retirement hobby job. In prime I think, minister, you know. he'd won the Waterloo. <laughs> but you make your park ranger. Park ranger. Um, he'd also been credited with saving London from the Chartists to yeah. a certain degree. So he felt that a cavalry contingent should be stationed in Hyde Park for the whole summer. Okay. Um, but Prince Albert, well, yeah, Prince Albert thought it probably wasn't in keeping with the whole peaceful purpose of the exhibition. The whole right. idea is to promote, you know, a sort of peace between yeah. nations. So, come to our country, um, so yeah, yeah, come to our country. You're very welcome. Just ignore all the men with guns everywhere. Don't mind them. Yes. Uh, don't worry about them. Yeah, and the Prime Minister actually suggested enlisting police officers from Paris and other European cities, didn't he? Who'd, yeah. Who would recognise the Romans from their own countries like it were like that. And Wellington yeah, was exactly. Like, like every police officer knows the face <laughs> of every criminal. It does yeah. seem quite yeah. bizarre, but that yeah. was the idea. Wellington wasn't having this. He was like, after his glory days at Waterloo, I, you know, I feel no want of confidence in my own powers to preserve the public peace and to provide for the general safety without requiring the assistance of French officers. Right, <laughs> I love it. it. In the let quote, the emphasis is on the French, but you know it's there. <laughs> let, let it go, Welly. Come yeah. on, mate. You had your moment. <laughs> um, but the officers from other countries, they did come uh, and sort of became part of the police. And there's these lovely stories about... Our, the Metropolitan Police arresting them quite often for being suspicious, um, i.e. they were foreign and talking foreign. That's enough for me. That's good so... enough for me. <laughs> what do you think, Albert? Oh, that is very dangerous. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Um, so yeah. Prince Albert didn't like the idea of over-policing and the army and everything. He felt that the way to stop the spark of revolution was to welcome the working classes and make sure they felt like they participated. It was quite a paternalistic view, but Bloody his liberals. view was... You know, they're only going to revolt if they're unhappy. If they're not right? allowed in. Let them in. Yeah. So yeah. if you make them happy and make them part of it, well, what's their problem? You know, apart from all the exploitation in their day-to-day lives. What's their problem? They've got to come to the thing, didn't they? So he set up this Central Working Classes Committee because, as you know, John, social reformers bloody love a committee. There's committees, so many committees right. in the uh, Great Exhibition. Uh, but this one was to ensure the interests of the working classes were taken into account while they're planning for the exhibition. And in the committee was William Makepeace Thackeray, Henry Cole himself, and a certain Charles Dickens. Wow. Um, and also in the committee, some of the members were even sort of former populists and chartists. Oh, my God, I can imagine this committee. I've been yeah. to enough meetings. 
There we go. Point yeah. of order, Mr. Chairman, understanding order 74. We should have uh, <laughs> reported back from the executive committee last Thursday. So they, oh, they wanted to be recognised as an official committee of the commission, didn't they? But Prince Albert's yeah. advisors wouldn't allow it. Thought it wasn't a great look for him to be associated with a body that included, you know, populists, maybe even socialists. And so Dickens felt, well, it's just a talking shop. If we've got no recognition, yeah. it's all a bit pointless. And I've been put on bloody commissions and things like that, where I thought, well, do we have any power to actually do anything? And it's to report back yeah. or something. It's like, oh, sod this. No, we're, we're, Yeah, there's yeah. so much of that happens, isn't yeah. there? Where committees are formed to look into something with zero power yeah. to actually put anything yeah. right that they might find, you know? And that's what Dickens felt this was. He was like, well, this is just... Yeah, I've got some books to write. Yeah, exactly. So it was disbanded in the end. But, you know, the idea was there. Well-meaning. <laughs> So the, the exhibition, it was made accessible to working classes in some different ways, in, in ways that other things certainly hadn't been. Despite promising those good people of, of Knightsbridge that the ticket prices would remain high until they were safely out of the city, in actual fact, they reduced them early on. So these one shilling tickets, which were the cheapest tickets, they were available from Mondays to Thursdays wow. from not long after the exhibition opened. So that made it much more accessible. So, John. You've got working class people across the country. How are they getting to London, John? This is a bit you like. It's your favourite bit. Is it narrowboats? <laughs> it's not narrowboats. It's your other favourite form of transport. Trains. Trains, I'm interested in historically John. trains. I'm not a train nerd train spotter. No, I'm, no, far I'm not more saying you're a train nerd. I like narrowboats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, so the railways were now, of course, this is very integral to the whole story, isn't it? That the railways were now mm, very a popular much means so. of travel and suddenly people could get into London. The first public railway, as our listeners will know, uh, opened in 1825 yep. and London's first railway began operating in 1836. So it's all incredibly recent. For, for many working people, of course, it's still an expensive way to travel yeah. if you're not very well off. So you needed you needed someone to sort of um, organise this for you. So a certain mm. Thomas Cook comes along and um, yeah. he was part of the temperance movement. 1841, he'd organised a group excursion from Leicester to Loughborough. I mean, you would do. You could walk I back. Mean, for a temperance <laughs> convention. I mean, everyone, no, don't stop pushing at the front. And, and 570 passengers, weirdly, made the journey with a huge fanfare, Leicester to Loughborough. Yeah, people went to wave them off. Yeah, it was a massive deal. We're going to Loughborough deal, for yeah. a temperance convention. Oh, woo, woo. oh, I'd love to travel one day. Open the champagne. Oh, <laughs> no, shit. No. Come on. Open the... <laughs> but it was so successful, we ended up moving to Leicester, created probably the world's first travel agent. And by the time of the uh, Great Exhibition, he was well-established business. And so he was able to exploit this great new attraction yeah. in London. Well, Joseph Paxton, who, you know, designed the Crystal Palace, he um, was also, I think he was on the on the board of the Midland Railways. Okay. And him and the head of Midland Trains approached Thomas Cook and said, you know, you should arrange exhibition excursions. And so he began, Thomas Cook began holding these meetings in towns around the Midlands, encouraging the creation of what he called savings clubs. So people knew the exhibition was coming right. and they could put away their, you know, shilling a week or whatever uh, in order to, by the time the exhibition came round, they could afford the fare, which from all the stations on Midland trains, it was a flat 15 shilling fare to London and then you're shilling to get in at the other end. And we apologise for the cancellation of the Great Exhibition Express. Uh, bus replacement services are in operation on this line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, interestingly, these people had saved and paid their 15 shillings. But actually, once the exhibition opened, rail prices were really cheap because all these different rail companies, when it was popular, suddenly in competition with yeah. each other. So you have these Thomas Cook excursions, but you also had across the country vicars were setting up savings clubs for their working class parishioners as well. And and you had like your local vicar would take you to London 
with all your, you know, from all these rural places, from uh, agricultural places. It was quite quite a something. new thing. And, and again, a new idea you know, to travel across the country or to go to the capital was a new thing with the age of the coming absolutely. Of the a lot of these people had never travelled anywhere, yeah. you know, let alone gone to their own capital. So ahead of the opening, the country's excited. There's a buzz. Right? Yeah. It's six months before it opens. You've got music hall artists writing songs about it. Adverts were already appearing for sheet music of pieces that have been written to celebrate the occasion. You had the Great Exhibition Polka, the Great Exhibition Waltz and the Great Exhibition Quadrille. Yeah. You know, all these things before it's even open. Fantastic. It's um, very exciting. And uh, everyone thinking yeah. what could possibly go wrong. And then, Angela, yeah. at this moment... <laughs> There was a crisis. The whole, this might be apocryphal, this story, but the whole thing filled up with sparrows and starlings and uh, <laughs> they didn't know what we're going to do. It's ruining the whole thing. It's just been overrun by birds. So Queen Victoria mm. summoned the Duke of Wellington and said, what are we going to do about this? And he just looked around and went, sparrow hawks, ma'am. And they got a couple <laughs> of sparrow hawks and released them inside the, the Crystal Palace. And uh, all the birds uh, got out of there as quick as it's they good. could. And apparently it was uh, apparently it was all sorted overnight. So maybe that's a true story. Oh, what? Maybe it's apocryphal. Did, Who knows? Would they not have had to keep the sparrowhawks there? Because otherwise, wouldn't the maybe they did? Maybe they had somebody walking around with a, with a you know a sort of big glove yeah. and, it, and. I mean, you know. it wouldn't be the weirdest thing that was in no, there. No, absolutely. That's for sure. Yeah, the Queen was sort of in, you know very invested in this. Now she was going to open the exhibition at a private ceremony uh, to a few invited guests, but. Uh, that was because of the fear of trouble, but this was so decided against. So it's just we'll open it with all the pomp than you'd expect from the Victorians. Oh yeah, it was first of May, eighteen fifty-one, nine a.m. precisely. The gates are opened, and the doors to the Crystal Palace itself are opened, and some thirty thousand season ticket holders pass inside. Yeah, that's on that's amazing. day one in the morning. Amazing. Um, in the middle of the building, there's this magnificent, like twenty-seven foot crystal fountain which had been kept under wraps until the opening day. Nobody okay. knew that was going to be there. Crowds gathered outside as well. There were between half a million and a million people lining the streets. Wow. And there was a big procession. So the opening day, I mean, you can imagine it. You've got choirs singing. You've got music playing. You've got pomp and ceremony. You've got Victoria and Albert in their ceremonial dress. You've got a procession yeah. with Paxton and Fox from Fox and Henderson okay. leading a procession. Um, you know, it was a... Big old And of course, party. Henry the Horse danced to the wars. Of course. <laughs> and even the French were impressed, weren't they? In the journal uh, debate, it was written, um, the 1st of May will count among the great days of England. She has shown herself in our eyes and in those of all of Europe in Her Majesty and all her glory. This great adventure is at the moment the inexhaustible topic of conversation throughout the civilised world. Wow, that's quite something for it the is. French Thank to you, have French. said that about yeah. us, isn't it? And so it's up and running. Yeah. It's off. And the, uh, and the working classes came just as Prince Albert had wanted them to. And they didn't even giggle when they said Prince Albert, or some of them did. No, they didn't. <laughs> and there's these wonderful, like, I was reading loads of little accounts of, and there's these stories of sort of Kentish vicars walking people in their smocks up from London Bridge to Hyde Park. You know, they've wow. got this group they've brought straight off the land, basically. Oh, wow. Still chewing a bit of grass, wow. you know. I've been back there course, in London. To people in London as well, these people look more foreign to them than actual foreigners. They were used to seeing foreigners, yeah, yeah. but people from Ken, well, still the you case know. with people from Ken, if we're honest, Angela. Well, yeah, true enough. <laughs> true enough. You can say that to me, John, because you know I am a Kentish lady. Um, <laughs> That's not, you am I? No, I'm, I'm a Kentish maid. I'm not a maid of you Kent. You misheard me. When I um, Kent. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and the newspapers. It's so funny. They reported on these groups of working class people that were coming to the exhibition as if they were exhibits wow. themselves. Wow. Like there, there's this um, section from the Times. It says, 
More perfect specimens of rustic attire, rustic faces and rustic manners could hardly be produced from any part of England, an affecting array of young and old, male and female, in which each observer might read with his own eyes the evidences of a laborious life, little relieved by intelligence or education, (laughs) but simple, unpretending and not unaccompanied by domestic virtue or happiness. Bit (laughs) patronising. <laughs> I mean, this is probably the first time the wealthy had, had, had uh, mingled freely with what they would think as their inferiors. They'd not had the courage to do yeah. that before. And also, they, yeah, they would have been frightened of yeah. them probably yeah. a little bit, you yeah. know, or the, and especially, like you say, with the background of these revolutions yeah. and, and working classes being unhappy across Europe. Yeah. Um, and, and Queen Victoria and Albert themselves had set the example. They, they would visit the exhibition pretty much every day that they were in okay. London and they would make a point of walking through the crowds, walking amongst wow. the people. They bring in tourists. They're marvellous. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But for, for you know, working class people, yeah. to, to see their monarch is quite something. And because lots of these people never been to London before they were making a major journey for the first time in their lives and in the entire generations before them yeah yeah so what did they see when they got there well John it was a sort of the only way I can think to describe it is a sort of tomorrow's world of its day and and there are catalogues of the (laughs) exhibits that you can see online right and and what I think's quite fascinating about it right you know Remember to- Tomorrow's oh, yeah, World, obviously. We're, I think we're talking to our older listeners. Where did Tomorrow's our World... Our older listeners. If, if you're younger, Tomorrow's World was a... <laughs> was it Maggie Philbin? It was, wasn't it? Presented by... And it was on in the sort of 70s, early 80s. And and they would show you this, sort of gadgets and things that were in the future. that you can use as you walk around, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's what I find fascinating about Tomorrow's World and what I think is similar with The Great Exhibition, when you look at the catalogue, if you look back at an episode of Tomorrow's World now, some of the stuff you look at is things like home computers yeah. or whatever. You're like, oh, wow, yeah, that did that and obviously was going to happen and it did happen. And then some of it is completely batshit mental. Yeah, that's never you know? going to work. Yeah. yeah, the hoverboards yeah. or the whatever that would just never yeah. come to fruition. And it's a bit like that with the, the Great Exhibition. You look at the list of stuff in it and you go, OK, well, yeah, they might have found that fascinating but obviously that's part of everyday life now and other stuff you go yeah they had what, they had what? so what were you some know, of the things tell me what were some of the, well, some of the things people flock one of the things they flocked to look at was an envelope folding oh, they, machine they were pretty stuck for Can entertainment back then weren't they there was there was like oh my god have you ever seen anything as exciting Just, as an envelope folding machine it's an envelope folding machine there was um, a carriage drawn by kites wow. furniture made from coal a knife with 1851 blades like <laughs> a false nose made of silver handy um a buttonless shirt for bachelors, okay. I don't know, presumably for whipping it off quickly. I don't know. Uh, a set of artificial teeth with a swivel device that allowed the user to yawn without displacing the lower or upper, upper rack of their dentures. Okay. Uh, condensed milk was shown in the British area because this was a British development and it showed okay. how you could get milk from dairies to cities without spoiling it. Uh, you know, so, you, 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 you've got the map. What should we go see? Well, I want to go and see the condensed milk exhibition. I see, <laughs> got people tins. were fascinated by this stuff. You know, and, and obviously there were foreign exhibits as well. Um, there were some issues with some of the foreign exhibits. For example, the Swiss very quickly regretted their cheese exhibition when they realised it's going to be sitting under a glass roof oh. all through the summer. Oh, wow. So, so yeah. they had to abandon that and stick to, I think, chocolate and clocks. Okay. Um, and I suppose... Uh, some of the exhibitions were what we might call a bit 
problematic now. Uh, yeah. The colonial sort of plundering that had been going on throughout uh, uh, the previous couple of hundred years. The Koh-i-Noor yeah. diamond was not a curry house. It was a very big, yeah. uh, it was a very big um, diamond that was uh, uh, um, robbed from... Stolen, from Indian, let's say stolen. Stolen yeah. from the Indian subcontinent. There's a whole section devoted to the things the East India Company had brought over. Yeah, obviously there was an emphasis on, on colonialism and... and yeah. uh, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> one of the largest exhibits was a, a model of Liverpool docks. Wow. And the five miles of Liverpool docks river frontage were reduced to 40 feet. So it's still massive. That's and it had like 1,600 meticulously accurate miniature ships on I'd it. Like and that must that, have been actually. something to see. I'd like to see I bet that. you would. <laughs> um, and, and they had like things like entire railway carriages. And yeah. I mean, it was massive. It covered 18 acres of Hyde Park. Wow. That's nine football pitches, oh, now I understand. about 2,000 double-decker buses, okay. or approximately 1,317,997th the size of Wales. I basically, John, I spent more time doing that maths than researching the entire topic, but I just felt I needed <laughs> to present it in a way our listeners would understand how big Everything it was. Everything always has to be size of Wales. It's like, rainforest <laughs> exactly. is the buses, size of Wales. It's, it's either Wales the country or Wales blue Wales buses and football pitches. That's that's, that's the unit that's, of measurement people yeah, understand. Yeah, I got um, it. yeah. So, and there was a uh, Pugin who was the architect. He was a Gothic revivalist. He, he worked on House of Commons. Yeah. Uh, he had his own corner, the medieval court. Okay. And he despised the building, and wow. he even said to Joseph Paxton, he said, "You'd better keep to building greenhouses, and I will keep to my churches and cathedrals." <laughs> I know. All right. I know. And his medieval court was basically filled with objects um, produced by his builder, um, George Myers or whatever. So he had his own little corner. corner, And uh, I've already mentioned the East India corner. Yeah. So it was just massive. And it was good as well for Londoners to see big machinery because London was still all about crafts, really. And low scale, you know, arts and crafts. Yeah. Yeah. And so what, like 4,000 exhibits altogether? Yeah. Over 4,000, that's mad, isn't it? And of course, John, the best bit, as we all know, of any museum or exhibition... Cafe in the gift shop. Cafe in the gift shop. Yes, there was... Exit by the gift shop. Do you get fridge It was. A little fridge There were were refreshment areas. People were encouraged to buy souvenirs. You get miniature fans, little medals. And loads of the manufacturers that were there, they produced what they called these stereoscope cards, which were like a 3D view of the exhibition. They're like paper-printed lithographic cards and they were hand coloured and held together by cloth they were quite something to have as a souvenir wow and then there was guidebooks targeting people coming from different places on how they should navigate the streets and the people of london uh, yeah such as the 28 page yorkshireman's guide to the great <laughs> metropolis and the crystal palace you can imagine that as a london beer oh, look, yeah, where's, look, where's the head on that london <laughs> there were lots of things that you could spend your money on uh, including Having a wee. It was the first modern pay toilets were installed at the Great Exhibition. Wow. And 827,280 visitors paid the penny to use them. Now, there was wee. a lot more visitors than that went to the exhibition. So presumably everyone else just pissed on the floor. I don't oh, know. Yeah, went well, outside of the park. That's when you invite working class people in. That's what you're going to get. Angela. That's what you're going to yeah. get. They're not paying a penny, are they? So the weather was fairly typical, wasn't it, for a British summer? It was either boiling hot yeah. or pissing down. And the, yeah, pretty the much. The roof of the Crystal Palace was never made totally waterproof. Yeah. Bloody, bloody glaziers. And so yeah. uh, before the close, several exhibitors would claim that some of their prize artefacts had been badly damaged by rain. Absolutely. And of course, heat, Scandals. then again, was a much worse problem, not only yeah. for the cheese people, but there, there was a canvas awning, um, but of course, the glass walls. So it just made it hotter inside than out. Wow. And the first 
really hot day they had was the 28th of June. And on that day, only 11,500 people were actually wow. prepared to pay to, to be slowly, slowly cooked. cooked. Yeah. Um, and they just went in there, gathered around the fountains, poured water over themselves. Okay. And, you know. and in the end, the staff took out some of the glass panels because then they got a bit of airflow. And then it started but, to rain again. Yeah. Apparently the busiest day was Tuesday the 7th of October. So it ran all right through to the autumn. That was the mm. last, uh, the penultimate. No, it was the last shilling day, but two. Yeah. So the last 000, of the cheap days. 109,000 people were, were admitted that day. That's quite a That's lot. That's mad, isn't it? Yeah. And the, the very last day the public were admitted, so it'd been open from the 1st of May, and the last public day was Saturday the 11th of October, and that yep. saw the highest turnout on a non-shilling day, so on an expensive day. And that day, it took the total number of visitors since the 1st of May above the 6 million mark. Wow. That's pretty good. So um, 6 million... Again, yeah, it wasn't 6 million individual yeah. visitors necessarily, but it's still a lot, a lot more than the 100,000 they'd predicted. Yes, God. Um, yeah. So at 5pm, the music stops and an official appears in the gallery with a red flag. It's a revolution coming after all. And, <laughs> and the uh, the clock struck five, he raised the flag and the organs burst into life again, playing the national anthem and everyone sang along with gusto. They as they did. should what on a the moment. BBC when programmes finish. <laughs> Absolutely. What a <laughs> moment. In the gallery, someone unfurls this piece of cloth and it bears lines from the Tempest, the lines that begin, our revels now are ended and that ends with, like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. And then they all sort of go. That's, and that was yeah. that for the general public. They get ushered out and by yeah. six o'clock, the public have gone. It's funny that the um, Olympic opening ceremony in 2012 had lines from The Tempest, didn't it? Kenneth Branagh going, the island is full of noises. That's, that's uh, from the same play. Yes, interesting. The official closing was on the 15th of October and on the intervening days, the exhibition was open just for exhibitors to have a bit of a wander around and see what yeah. the rivals were up to. So basically, yeah, public left on the 11th yeah. but between the 11th and the 15th it was the people who were exhibiting obviously were a bit busy they hadn't really had a chance to look at anything else so they were allowed on those few days to yeah. have their sort of chance to have a look around which I thought was quite nice um, the official closing wasn't done by Queen Victoria they decided it should be Prince Albert that, which she later wrote in her diaries she was a little bit upset she didn't get to be there Aww. But it was felt that, you know, it was Prince Albert's baby, really. So he, with a load of invited dignitaries, had this sort of... So it wasn't open to the public, the closing ceremony. It was sort right. of quite um, performative kind of thing. And Viscount Canning, uh, he represented all the juries that had been uh, looking at all the exhibits, obviously. And at this point, they decided who the awards were going to. And he presented the list of awards um, that were made to the exhibitors. Of more than 17,000 exhibitors who took part... 164 of them received the top-rated council medal and 2,918 got the slightly lesser prize medal and a few others got some honourable mentions as well. Of those council medals, 78 went to British exhibits and 54 to France, so we won. Ah. We did win, but we also had a lot more exhibitors. <laughs> now, we won, let's just be clear, on the medals table, 78 Britain 54 France, Prussia, <laughs> seven. That's rubbish. This is better than the Eurovision Song Contest. Um, United States, five. Austria, four. That's the Austro-Hungarian Empire, I suppose, isn't it? Mm. And then uh, other countries from three to none. No yeah. prizes of any kinds went to weapons. Yeah, no, weapons were displayed, but they weren't given prizes yeah, because like it had a peaceful purpose, which oh, I think good. was really nice. Yeah. Um, of course, exhibitors moaned about the medals, about Britain getting more medals than anyone else. Uh, and in fact, by the 21st of October, sort of a couple of weeks later, the Times announced that it received so many letters from people who felt aggrieved that it decided just not to print any of them. Oh, good. Okay. So, but what the aggrieved people then did instead, they paid for advertising space in the Times and aired their grievances there. It's a good look. Um, it's a good look. There's a couple of them made me laugh. 
There's one, there's a Monsieur Guilleret, a French teacher in Edinburgh, and he was disgruntled because his display of lentils, John, which are proposed <laughs> to substitute for potatoes, and this is only five years after the potato famine, of uh, it'd been passed over. Uh, and he was pissed off because medals had been awarded for snuff and white wheat, but so not his lentils. I'm going to put an advert in the Times saying I should have got a yes. prize for my lentils. <laughs> Thomas Harrington from Portsmouth claimed £65 in compensation because the jury had failed to examine his false teeth. Yes, it's like, uh, how could you be in with a chance of winning if they don't even look, look at your at my false, false teeth, teeth, John? We just didn't like to be too, um, <laughs> too rude. Was it success, Angela? Was it? It seems like it was. Well, it depends who you ask, but largely, yes, it was. I mean, Karl Marx commented that the Crystal Palace was a pantheon in which the bourgeoisie had erected gods in its own image and was now worshipping oh, them, which, you know, Carl. Honestly, fair point. Like, but it was like, a minority opinion at the time. <laughs> yes, um, uh, Punch yeah. magazine and other more radical periodicals had things to say, didn't they? And especially yeah. how there was no focus on the plight of workers. Yeah, it's supposed to be celebrating the working man, but it wasn't talking about working conditions or, yeah. you know, things that have really affected the working man. Yeah. There was some foreign criticism, of course, of the British grandstanding um, and that foreign ambassadors were treated as though they were subjects of British greatness, um, yeah. you know, because we we're unbearable and <laughs> we just can't yeah. help ourselves. Um, but overall, it was embraced by most of the country. It was embraced by Queen Victoria. It was embraced by the British elite. Uh, it was seen as exemplifying this sort of utilitarianism, globalisation, liberalism, and this social mixing, um, which was some of the better elements of British society at the time, you know, ignoring all yeah. the bad stuff. They were, yeah. things were starting to be different to to how it had been in the previous 50 years. I mean, looking at, you know, the century overall, it's a sort of high point, I would say, of mm. Britain's sort of um, status in the world before yeah. the rise of Prussia and the Franco-Prussian War showed that Britain, you know, could not dictate the balance of power in Europe and then the, the, yeah. the, the rise of Germany in the, you know, the Second World War. Sorry, the First World War. So, yeah. you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a moment of great national pride and celebration really and there's poems Absolutely. about it Thackeray yeah. and Tennyson wrote about it Thomas Hardy writes about it yeah there were songs there were you know it was it was a a, a moment of like saying sort of mostly national pride and celebration financially it was a success of course it made a profit of 186,000 pounds um, and that was used by the Royal Society of well initially some of the the sort of subscribers from across the country went well we'll have some of that then Right. And they were they were like, no, read the small print. These, oh, wow. these were donations. You don't okay, you don't get to make back. a profit. Um, but that money was put towards buying Gore House, which uh, and seventy acres of land, which is on the other side of Knightsbridge from the site. And they built a complex of institutions, uh, including a museum of manufactures. And that okay. site is now what is the Victoria and Albert Museum, Science and Natural History Museums, oh, right. Royal Geographical Society, Royal Albert Hall, and Imperial College of Science and Technology. So all that. Yeah, that whole bit, Museum Mile, yeah. Yeah, great. was bought largely with um, money made from the Great Exhibition. An interesting little side note, it marked the yeah. start of the America's Cup as a syndicate of businessmen from New York sailed the schooner America from across the Atlantic Ocean to represent the United States. Yeah. And that's been the cup ever since. Absolutely. And, and you know, talking of, of things that developed because of the Great Exhibition, there was a certain Mr Charles Harrod, who was a gentleman, he'd taken over a little Knightsbridge grocery store in 1849, a couple of years before, and it was barely viable, this right. store. But then thanks to this influx of visitors in 1851, he made loads of money, he was able to acquire surrounding properties, uh, increase the goods he sold, and now okay. you've got Harrods. Oh, OK, that's a good yeah. Or as my dad once, um, <laughs> my dad dated this woman once, and she was, I don't know how he met her, I dread to think, 
but she was this incredibly wealthy woman, lived in a flat in Knightsbridge. Uh, like her parents were very wealthy. I, I was quite young at the time. I only met her a few times. And my dad was like a bit of rough. Like the, it was really weird. Oh, wow. It didn't last very long. But she used to, Harrods was like a local shop. She used to call it H.A. Rods. Oh my God. We're getting H. A. Nip to H.A. Rods. <laughs> yeah, it was mad. I often think about, I wish, because my dad's not alive. I wish I could, I knew who she yeah, was. Yeah. I'm sure she had some connections. You know, I wonder who she was. Anyway. Wow. There you go. Her name was Sarah. I remember that. So Sarah. If you're listening. H.A. Rods, if you're listening, get in touch. I don't know if you remember. You're a bit rough from the 80s, little me. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the the way the working classes were catered for seems sort of slightly paternalistic to our ears, and it probably was. But Mm. I suppose it it was some advancement and slight social change that they were even included Mm. in the equation. That they were considered at all. That it was even, you know, they were even included that rather than just being manpower to build it and put it on they were invited to take part as well that's something very different and of course the legacy of the great exhibition you have in a hundred years later in 1951 there was the festival of britain which um was to mark the end of austerity britain of course which had a very big focus on working class life and yes um, yes and then of course how could we forget john the millennium dome the Millennium Dome. I think we can all draw a veil over the Millennium Dome. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's not to, explore that. Did you ever go I to the Millennium go. Dome? I went I on the very go. last day. I went on the last I, day of Jan- uh, last day of December. I think it was the, the, when it was the day before it closed or something. I went with my friend Paul got free tickets for some reason. So I went with him. Right. I didn't pay for it. And I just remember being really disappointed at the... What could have potentially been. Yeah, like yeah. The, the, edu- like I, the only bit I really remember was the the body zone or whatever it's oh, called, yeah, where you walked sneeze, through a human through body. Yeah, that was quite You know, and, and you, but it was done in a way that it was sort of artistic. And, but I thought this was such a, a learning tool miss. Like it should have yeah. been telling you exactly what each part of that body did. And it just didn't, you know. And I've, I've made me really like, oh, this yeah. is such a missed opportunity. I, Obviously Cirque du Soleil, the show was, was amazing. Good. Yeah, I went with... Uh, I went with my little boy who was uh, would have been uh, six. I remember it's right at the end of December. It snowed outside. We had a little uh, snowball fight. We went inside. We went inside the body zone. We walked around yeah. the faith zone. We watched the show. And at the end of the day, I said, what was your favourite thing, Freddie? He went, having a snowball fight with you. <laughs> I thought, well, there's exactly. a, a billion quid down the drain. <laughs> exactly. But it did just feel like it was so, yeah. it had... Yeah. There was such an opportunity for some brilliant stuff that I, just... Yeah, I just don't think we were as easily impressed as we were in 1851. And now no. we've seen a lot more and uh, you've got to work a lot harder to impress us. But also it just wasn't... I think we would be more impressed by what was there in 1851 than the Millennium Dome. At yeah. least it had sort of more functional, utilitarian purpose. You knew what it was, I think. You knew what it was. You knew what it was and and, and what to expect. And it was interesting, whereas I just found... (laughs) Interesting. Being interesting is probably one of the things you want in an exhibition. Absolutely. So so thank you, Angela, for taking me through the uh, Great Exhibition of 1851. I've learned a lot. I've read the um, um, uh, Collection of Essays by Louise Purbeck. I did actually get your book as well and read a bit of that. Oh, yeah. I'll say the name of it again. It is The World for a Shilling, How the Great Exhibition of 1851 Shaped a Nation by Michael Leapman. Thank you, Michael Leapman. Yes. And uh, thank you for listening, everyone, and for suggesting uh, that subject. We'll be back next week with another thrilling episode of wearehistory.net.com. We and, will. Uh, I like how you say with another thrilling episode, but we don't even know what we're going to be talking about yet. Ju- but it will be thrilling. It. it will be amazing. <laughs> It'll be something from the olden days. It will. Um, um, keep giving the stars on Uber. Keep, yeah, five, um, preferably. Uh, on Uber, yeah, that's right. And keep uh, <laughs> keep tweeting and tell your friends, and we'll see you next yeah. time. At We Are History Pod.
Thank you, folks. See you next time. Bye.